This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Art can mean many things. There's visual art, music, dance, and theater. Even long-form interview shows can be artistic. For people with disabilities, the art scene can be a mixed blessing. On the one hand, there are opportunities for self-expression, storytelling, advocacy, and change-making. On the other hand, there is vulnerability, fear of putting yourself out there, and barriers to accessing programming, funding, and venues. Art provides a platform to challenge ableism and preconceptions about people with disabilities. Disability art has often found room in activist spaces. It's a valuable part of the disability rights movement. But it is past time that disability art is recognized as mainstream art. Today, we discuss disability and art. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta. It's really good to be with you today. In a recent announcement, which I came across uh, in a newspaper article, Global Affairs Canada has purchased the work of about 13 artists with disabilities, all based out of Calgary, to add to its permanent collection. We'll be hearing more about this decision and why it's so significant. Each of the 13 artists is affiliated with the National Access Arts Centre, for more about the Global Affairs decision and to learn about the uh, National Access Arts Centre, I am joined today by J.S. Rayu, who is the President and CEO of the National Access Arts Centre. J.S., hello and welcome to the program. It's really good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. In a few words, J.S., what can you tell us about the National Access Arts Centre? Well, the National Access Arts Centre, or the NAAC, is actually Canada's largest and oldest disability arts organization. We were founded in 1975, and today we provide supports to a growing community of more than 350 artists living with developmental and or physical disabilities um, through artistic training, creation opportunities, and exhibition and presentation opportunities across a wide range of artistic disciplines, including visual arts in this case, but also in digital media, dance, theatre, uh, music and literary arts. Tell us a little bit more about your programming and services. For those of us who are hearing about NAAC for the first time, what are some of the services that we could access? And is it open to people just living in Calgary or can anyone in Canada access your programs and services? Well, for now, our focus is on artists primarily in the Calgary and surrounding areas. We actually have mm -hmm. artists that come out from the Bow Valley, so Canmore and that surrounding community as well. Um, our plans over the next little while, we've recently rebranded to become the National Access Art Centre. And mm -hmm. our plans over the next little while are to introduce digital programs uh, that will allow uh, other communities of individuals and artists with disabilities across this country to be able to access our programs. But, but 
but our, our program at its very sort of at the very heart of its design is around creating space. So we don't mm. necessarily teach our artists. However, we help facilitate a process where we help our artists realize whatever it is that their creative vision is. So if it's a visual arts piece, uh, we give them the space and we give them the tools. I mean, right now our space is permanently closed or, or currently closed, um, but uh, pre-COVID, uh, our artists would access a studio environment with the, with the tools and supplies. We have our own kiln room, for example, and they basically create anything that they desire and we help facilitate that process. It's a very self-directed process and that's the same that applies across uh, all of our other artistic disciplines, whether that's dance or music or theater. It's very artist-driven and we simply help facilitate that artistic process. Yeah, makes sense to me. Now, if one were interested in sculpture or dance or theater, uh, could they approach you even if they didn't have any prior experience or if they didn't have a background? How does that work? That's the greatest thing about our organization is that there is no prerequisite to join. It's simply a passion for the arts that we we require mm-hmm. from any applicant. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, based on how you look at it, uh, we have a, a fairly lengthy wait list of individuals wanting to join our program. We're very popular because the arts is just it just has such a huge positive impact on every single one of the artists that come through our program. And so um, we have a fairly extensive wait list. So anybody who lives in Calgary, um, they will need to uh, enter into that list and wait anywhere between two to three years to join our program. Until, of course, you know, you open up the digital offerings, in which case you might have a, a wait list that is national and, and, and then people across the country will have to will have a chance to uh, engage with some of your programming. Let's talk a little bit about the decision from Global Affairs Canada. Tell us a little bit about what the decision actually is and how it all came about. Certainly. Um, Global Affairs Canada is, is um, as many of your listeners will know, is Canada's uh, foreign affairs ministry. And uh, they typically uh, maintain a fairly extensive visual arts collection as part of their permanent collection. And it's a very important pillar to the work of our foreign ministry because they then deploy uh, this permanent collection to various embassies, ambassadors, residences, and cultural initiatives and centers all around the world to be a part of Canada's cultural diplomacy strategy. Um, The Mm. exciting part about this is that typically uh, global affairs would be purchasing works from very, very well-established or um, artists or artists who have a very significant historical relevance to Canada. So for example, some of Canada's most well-known visual artists, including those that are part of the group of seven, for example, would have Mm -hmm. some of their works um, be permanently acquired and be a part of this collection from global affairs. This marks the first time in global affairs history that they're partnering with a disability arts organization in acquiring works that have been designed and and drawn by artists living with developmental disabilities. And so that in and of itself is significant. Now with these 13 works that are now part of the permanent collection, these works are now going to be deployed um, based on uh, Canada's cultural diplomacy strategy. They will be deployed to all corners of this globe over the, over the, you know, indefinite period of time over the next little while. Well, it goes without saying that this is a huge achievement for the artists in question to have their work uh, become part of Global Affairs permanent collection. Uh, But beyond that, for people with disabilities as a whole, why is this such a significant move to be to have the work of artists with disabilities recognized in this way 
by Global Affairs Canada? Well, I think you kind of hit it on the head when you first uh, started this interview around how do we position the creative contributions of artists with disabilities as being contemporary mainstream art. And this signifies that shift. Uh, this this whole process was not looked at a lens of, oh, well, these are artists with disabilities. This was actually adjudicated and curated with the lens of uh, assessing uh, their creative contributions as bona fide artistic contributions. And so that in and of itself is tremendously important. Uh, it's really also very important to mention that all of the artists, actually all artists, whether they were part of this particular initiative or not, all of our artists supported by the NAAC receive industry standard artist fees, whether they mm -hmm. sell their works or exhibit their works. Since 2019, we've actually dispersed more than $150,000 worth of artist commission checks to our community. And so in this case, uh, all of these acquisitions, the artists will be have received royalties as part of this acquisition process. And that's also very significant. And again, it, it signifies uh, that recognition of our artists being artists. Mm. I'm now curious about which of your many artists, because you talked about uh, having a community of about 300 as part of the NAAC. So which 13 artists are going to have their work displayed in this fashion? What can you tell us about, if not all of them, then at least some of them? Oh, it, uh, I can't uh, recall all 13 <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, however, um, you know, one particular artist that comes to mind is an artist named David Opong. And, uh, and David is just such a thoughtful artist. Um, he actually hasn't been with us for that long. He was uh, actually on our wait list for a long period of time before joining. And his piece actually is called uh, Resiliency and Coronavirus. It was part of a commissioning uh, project that was initiated by the NAAC which asked a select group of artists about how to how they are responding to the onset of the pandemic. And David's piece is actually quite beautiful. It, it sort of positions two realities into one visual arts piece, a reality of sort of life pre-COVID and a life um, sort of that is a little desolate uh, during COVID. But uh, his message, I believe, I mean, I can't speak for him, but when I see his work, it talks about just that balance that, you know, as we live our world, we will have those moments where we have complete happiness and sunshine. And we we will have those moments where um, it's it's quite um, you know depressing and it's isolating and there are clouds that are surrounding us physically or metaphorically and that balance is what makes life go on and 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 his his piece is just so beautifully done and it and it demonstrates that balance so well um, so there's uh, David and the one ad additional artist that I'll give a shout out to um, is uh, Amber Harriman and so she did a fiber piece. And uh, it's a piece that sh um, shows a number of, I believe they're, they're logs or, or, or pieces of wood that are reflected in water. And that last piece of log kind of transforms into a dancer. And that, again, is reflected in the water and reflects um, sort of her experience uh, actually competing for Canada at the Special Olympics World Games in Abu Dhabi, where she brought home uh, seven medals. Um, and, and I think it's a reflection of the human body and human movement and that sense of pride that she's able to accomplish so much um, through the movement of her body. And that, that piece reflects that so well. well. It all sounds really amazing. And that's just two out of the 13. Now, I believe you have an online launch coming up on May 10th. What more can you tell us about that? 
So uh, one of our artists, uh, the other artist that has been profiled as part of this acquisition is actually um, Susie Meredith, who um, ha has spent a fair amount of time in Canada, uh, in Calgary, because her mother is actually the British Consul General, Carolyn Saunders. And so um, she was a part of our community. Unfortunately, sadly, she's leaving us to go back to the UK in the coming weeks. But um, because of that particular connection, our work caught the attention of the British High Commissioner in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the High Commissioner uh, has volunteered to co-host uh, a virtual launch where she's inviting some of her special guests, where the British Consul General here in Calgary is uh, inviting her guests. And we're inviting a, a sort of a private community of arts lovers and philanthropists and uh, diplomats uh, based in Canada to celebrate this virtual launch and, and, and give them that sense of awareness that uh, they may not have had before about organization. Well, it sounds very exciting. You're listening to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joytha Gupta, and with me today is the President and CEO for the National Access Arts Centre, J.S. Ryu. J.S., you, you've had this wonderful opportunity for some of your artists, but it's not the only opportunity for international exposure that NAAC has been involved with. I know a couple of years back, you had some artwork displayed uh, at a fairly busy airport in Dubai, I'm sure that the artists appreciate the exposure, but tell me a little bit about the exposure that you and your colleagues uh, may have had uh, to the perception of disability in countries other than Canada, because we do have our sort of specific way of thinking through disability. And I am so curious to know if other countries perceive and react and respond to disability differently. Oh, I think that's a fantastic question. Um, it, it, for us, one of the real reasons why we've been pushing our artists and our artworks overseas is actually we, we, we see that as a huge learning opportunity, not only for our organization, but for our country. Um, when we, for example, went to Hong Kong, um, there was a lineup out the door for people wanting to see our artists' works. We have never even seen that kind of a response here in Canada, which makes which makes us believe that in some markets like Hong Kong, um, it, it's not even about the disability. They just they just love art. I mean, it's a very culturally mm -hmm. advanced um, sort of jurisdiction, and so um, we were quite surprised to see that. And we 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 partnered with disability arts organizations all around the world to learn about how they are, are integrated into their communities. So in Dubai, for example, um, same thing. The response was absolutely overwhelming. And, um, and in Dubai, for example, the sister organization that was there, they actually had to shut down due to COVID, um, but mm. the sister organization that was there, they were actually very integrated, very well integrated into the local arts and culture scene. When you land at the Dubai International Airport, one of the permanent installations at the airport is done by an artist with a developmental disability supported by the sister organization. When you go mm -hmm. to the Dubai Mall, the world's largest mall. Again, a permanent installation developed, designed by an artist with a developmental disability. And so that kind of integration um, is absolutely inspiring to see. And it, I think, gives Canada um, uh, something to learn from uh, and, and to, to sort of dream big about how we were to do the same, how we are to do the same for our community of artists and in integrating their creativity in our communities here. But do people think about disability differently? I mean, in Canada, there's a medical model of disability where disability is often equated with suffering. And that's sort of the established world view. And then, of course, we've got people within the disability movement who push back against that dominant ideology. Do 
do people in places like Dubai think about people with disabilities as inherently dependent or uh, needing support? Or does the art uh, and the exposure to this art in very public places signify something about the treatment of disability itself? It's interesting. I find, uh, you know, when we when we narrow in on Dubai, uh, you know, they have a bit of an interesting human rights record that is quite well mm. documented. Um, but when it comes to individuals with disabilities, and I've heard this from other people outside of organization as well, Dubai is quite advanced. Um, one of the interesting things that I often share with folks is that in Dubai, we don't call uh, individuals with disabilities with that particular term. They're, they're called people of determination or people with determination or the determined ones. And so I, I suppose there's an interesting perspective uh, and, and a lengthy uh, discussion that can be had around that particular nomenclature. But I thought that was interesting. Um, but when we looked at uh, how our sister organization, how those sort of mainstream partners viewed that particular community of artists, it, it was so far advanced. It was not about, again, it was not about viewing the art from a particular lens because they had a disability. Their mm -hmm. approach to these artists, this community of artists, is viewing them for their artistic merit alone. And I think that that, um, that is a little bit more advanced than what we're seeing so far in Canada. Although, uh, of course, this you know initiative with Global Affairs sort of signifies a, a different path forward. Mm. Speaking of determination, you know, I've spoken to a lot of artists and people in your position where they're the CEO of an art gallery for people with disabilities or just art galleries in general. And they say, it'd be really nice if someone had a national show or wouldn't it be great if we could tour Europe or North America? Um, yeah, of course, we think that international disability arts movement is something worth aspiring for. What makes you unique, at least to me, JS, is the fact that you actually went out and did it um, and you pushed the envelope. What is it that drove you personally to try and realize this vision of, of seeing international exposure for Canadian artists with disabilities? Oh, you know... Um, I, I don't have a very strong visual arts background or an arts background for that matter, but one of the great blessings that I've had in my career is that I've worked for and I've interacted with world-class arts organizations based in Canada. One particular one that I'd recently worked for before coming to this organization was the BAM Center. And when, mm. I, when I was working for the BAM Center, and this is a world-class artist paradise, I, I, what I took away from that experience was that there needs to be infrastructure and supports in place, even for artists without disabilities, in order for them to gain that exposure and have access to world-class support. And so my my mantra coming into the National Access Arts Center was, was quite a vain one, right? I, I didn't really dig deep into uh, the details of it, but I said, Gosh, team, I want us to, you know, if there's a mainstream artist who, who, where we acknowledge that world-class exposure, world-class supports, international exhibitions and artist residencies are important to an artist without a disability, why would it not be important for our community of artists with disabilities? And so mm -hmm. to that end, I mean, even that the fact that we've been one of the first Canadian disability arts organizations to actually send six artists in 2019, we sent six artists overseas, right? They were there placed in different locales around the world, embedded as artists in residence. And in fact, um, I know that, uh, you know, there's a significant listenership of, of individuals with vision loss. One of our artists with vision loss actually was placed in Guadalajara as an artist in residence. Uh, mm -hmm. That's huge. It's important because we're trying to create the same equitable opportunities that would be made available if you, if you 
you didn't happen to have a disability. And so um, that that has been our approach, and that's been that will continue to be our approach for the for the time being. So if we're talking about creating sort of an equal playing field or opportunities for artists with disabilities. What do art galleries that are not the National Access Art Center take away from that conversation? How do they make their spaces, their processes, their um, their their culture more receptive to the contribution of people with disabilities? I think it begins with a very thoughtful um, sort of conversation and, and a thoughtful brainstorm around what that means. You I mean to be accessible because accessibility means something very different for somebody with vision loss versus somebody with hearing loss versus somebody with Down syndrome. And so uh, I think in order to be accessible, we have to have a lot of uh, sort of serious intent behind how we're designing or thinking about designing programs that are accessible. And I, I would encourage, you know, art galleries and arts organizations around the world and across Canada to really reach out. I mean, one of the great things that we're seeing in Canada is that we have a bubbling movement here. There are sister disability arts organizations in Vancouver, Edmonton, Toronto, Ottawa, and Winnipeg. I mean, wherever you're going, there are small pockets of communities coming together to, to supporting communities of artists with disabilities. As an art gallery or as a mainstream arts organization, I think the very first thing you, one needs to do is reach out and understand this community and understand that accessibility is much more than a ramp. Accessibility mm-hmm. is much more than an elevator. In, 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 and in many ways, it's it's sort of re-revolutionizing from the ground up how we're designing a program, especially when we're talking about individuals of neurodiverse backgrounds uh, and who have developmental disabilities. Mm. Hey, let me talk to you a little bit about the artists themselves. There's clearly an appetite for and interest in art by and for people with disabilities. After all, one in five Canadians self-identifies as living with a disability. So I dare say there's an audience for it. But many people with disabilities may feel that by labeling themselves as an artist with a disability, there's a bit of a tension between getting recognized and getting their work recognized on the basis of the fact that we uh, we don't see a lot of art in the mainstream by and for people with disabilities. But they might also at the same time, worry about being pigeonholed and backed into a corner where their only art that is sort of given airtime or given exposure is the art that speaks directly to their experience of living with a disability. Does that tension ever come up in the conversations that you have with artists? And if it does, then how do you how do you address that with them? I don't think that tension exists amongst our artist community itself. I mean, fortunately, I think our community is just grateful for whatever exposure they're able to get, which which actually bothers me a little bit. Um, one of the things that we've done, I mean, I joined this organization in 2017, and we had never exhibited our works in a professional gallery before. I mean, we were happy if a local cafe would put up a piece of art, and, and then we would call that an exhibition. And I took great offense to that personally. Um, and that sort of tension now exists actually with with more of the mainstream community where we push back. We go, no, we want to be exposed and exhibited in professional opportunities. Um, we're going to frame our artists' works. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about visual arts, we do other disciplines as well, but, but it's the same across disciplines. If it's a dance show, if it's a music show, it's that amount of professionalism, how it's set up, how it's produced, how it's curated, all of those things, we apply a very professional lens to it, which 
I believe reduces that tension, whether you're an artist with a disability or an audience with a dis uh, audience member with a disability, or if you don't happen to have a disability, the added professionalism and the kind of um, that discipline that we apply to how we're showcasing our artists' works reduces that tension automatically. I mean, in December of this year, we're going to be uh, exhibiting our artists' works at the Prince Takamoto Gallery inside the Embassy of Canada in Tokyo, Japan. That gallery is perhaps one of the most beautiful galleries that that I've ever come across in this world. And we're going to be professionally framing, professionally lighting. I mean, everything's going to be, uh, you know, in parallel with any other world-class exhibition that one would see. That eliminates that tension right away. It begins mm. to shift that conversation away from, oh, it's somebody with a disability who happens to be doing art to, oh, we're looking at artists who happen to have disabilities. And that's, that sort of shift is tremendously important. And we're very excited to, to sort of continue down that path. We've got about 30 seconds left in this conversation. Just let us know where we can follow uh, the work of the National Access Art Center, your social media, your website, perhaps. And for people who live in the Calgary area, if they want to get on that wait list you talked about earlier, how do they do that? Oh, I encourage everybody to visit our website at accessarts.ca and also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is at accessartsca. And, uh, and there's tons of information on there, not just about how one would register and be on our wait list, but there are also a, a very exciting public programs that are happening digitally. So that could be open to all Canadians across the country who want to learn a little bit more about our organization and what we do. JS, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. J.S. Ryu is the president and CEO of the National Access Arts Centre based in Calgary, Alberta. He joined us today from Calgary. If you missed any of my conversation with J.S., you can find the podcast on your favourite podcast platform. Don't forget to like, rate or subscribe. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank J.S. Ryu for being my guest on the programme today. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.